Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's SLIS Colloquia, a program now in our third year. Brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical engineer, we are producing this series as part of our school's mission to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's speaker, however, a few uh, announcements. Please look for new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website at least every other week throughout the term, where you will also find a webcast archive of all of our previous presentations on the SLIS homepage at sliseweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts, so you can freely share them with fellow students, colleagues, and associates. Details on how to access these presentations, either through RSS feeds or the iTunes store, can be found on the colloquia page. Viewers can now also watch the SLIS colloquia on blip.tv, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our students, I'd like to invite you to visit SLIS 21, the school-wide blog maintained by our associate director, Dr. Linda Main. On the school's homepage, you will find SLIS 21, and it concentrates on school administration and curricular development, and even invites you for your ideas about new classes as well. And for everyone in the SLIS community, I'd like to invite you to participate in SLIS Life, the school's new social networking space. SLIS Life offers searchable profiles, messaging, and blogs in which you share experiences and ideas about your experience here at SLIS. Finally, if you are viewing this presentation before mid-November in 2008, the faculty heartily invite you to come to our huge and gathering event planned for the evening of Saturday, November 15th, called The Future is Within Reach, Student Scholarship Fundraiser, which will be held at San Jose's Museum of Art in beautiful downtown San Jose. We've scheduled this event to coincide with this year's library, uh, California Library Association Conference, and 100% of the proceeds go to SLIS student scholarships. As usual, the website contains all of the necessary details. We're going to be introducing uh, Jennifer Devlin today. Jennifer is a principal architect with EEHD, which is Eshrick, Holmesy, Holmesy, Dodge, and Davis, EHDD, since 1994. Jennifer actually um, became a uh, principal with EHDD in uh, uh, 2001. Um, EHDD is a, renow um, a renowned Bay Area architect and they do things uh, nationally as well. She started with uh, Joseph Eshrick, which was one of the original principals at the firm when they did San Francisco's Tenderloin School. She now leads the firm in, uh, in their work uh, ranging from academic facilities to galleries, museums, schools, and public libraries. Within EHDD, Jennifer fosters and contributes a wide range of individual development with people who are fresh out of architecture school as well as those who are expert and seasoned architects. Both within the firm and through her interactive public workshops, she cultivates collective insights to create vibrant, engaging, and inspiring places. Jennifer has found her passion in design that elevates the experience of place, balanced by skillful, hands-on collaboration with clients, users, and community groups. 
She has a keen interest in the sociology of place, such as how people understand and embrace or draw back from buildings, neighborhoods, streets, or cities. Jennifer holds a Bachelor of uh, Environmental Design degree from the Miami University in Ohio and earned her Master of Architecture degree from the University of California at Berkeley. She's also uh, the current president of the San Francisco chapter of the American Institute of Architects. I first met Jennifer in 2001 at the Harvard Design Summer Institute School of, uh, on Public Libraries and was facilitated by the very well-regarded library architect Nolan, Nolan Lushington. And this past May, I attended a library journal-sponsored uh, event called the Design Think Tank, uh, and it was entitled Going Green. And there were architects from EHDD there, and it occurred to me at that point that we might be able to invite Jennifer to come and talk today at our colloquia. Um, and she was able to fit us into her schedule after just returning from a trip to China. So please uh, join with me and the rest of the faculty in and, uh, welcoming Jennifer Devlin. Thanks for coming today. Thanks to those of you uh, online for participating in this presentation. It's a, it's a true honor to be here. And I've, I enjoy the subject matter, sustainability and buildings. Um, and it's been a deep part of my life uh, over the last 20, 25 years. So um, I'm happy to be here sharing it with you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, my goal uh, to, with you today is to share enough information, some of it somewhat detailed and maybe too technical, um, such that you walk away from this presentation looking at the built environment in a different way. And I'll be taking you on a tour both through the concepts of sustainable building that are the history of my firm. I'll be taking you on a tour of the San Mateo Public Library, which, recent, which opened a couple of years ago and has set a very high sustainability bar. I'll take you through a little personal story of my own development um, on the issues of the environment and the built environment. And um, I'll end with a description of the 2030 challenge, which I suspect many of you don't know anything about, um, but uh, should. And so I'm, uh, that's, that's the progression for today. I, in my, uh, in my testing of this, it was about a 40-minute presentation, so you can be prepared for that. And I'm happy to take questions at the end. EHDD Architecture is a firm that's been around for close to 65 years. We were started by a man named Joseph Eschrich in the 40s, who was trained on the East Coast, moved to California, and became completely inspired by both the landscape, the environment, and the kind of daylight and what has been uh, come to known as the Bay Area style. His practice was mostly a residential practice, small-scale houses, and the buildings and houses up at Sea Ranch, if any of you have been there, probably best um, exemplify his view of how buildings need to work um, with great synchronicity with the environment. The, the, the forms of these buildings, as you can see here, the roofs take on the shapes and patterns of the wind uh, flow from the Pacific Ocean and across that plain. The, this was at the time in the 40s a very new and distinct, well actually this is later than the 40s, but this was a very new and distinct form in architecture. Um, so the way the, the buildings really become part of that natural landscape, they mimic the shapes of the, the uh, trees there that have been blown by the wind. And that really was an, uh, kind of a, the, the, has been the basis for our work. How do buildings both respond to their communities and their natural environment? Uh, further on, Mr. Eschrick was a big researcher, was doing research with the British in, in 
um, the late 40s, early 50s, on daylight and how daylight affects human behavior, how it can be controlled, both um, sunlight coming into a building to warm it up in a very passive way and how um, it can really improve the quality of the indoor of a building. So his houses started to work with elements such as sunshades and trellises, which now you see on buildings everywhere. But it was, it was kind of a, a modern interpretation of the arcade, the colonnade, the, the thick walls, thin walls, and how, how buildings work from the inside to the outside and the outside to the inside. The firm grew uh, from residential work into public work, and you may know us. You, you won't know us as the architects of the Monterey Bay Aquarium, but now you do. Um, and what, what struck me in visiting the Monterey Bay Aquarium before I worked with the HDD was that you, it took me three times to visit before I paid attention to the building at all. It was really the experience of being out there on the bay. And that was just around the time when I was joining EHDD, and I thought, That's, this is the kind of firm I want to be with, where the, the building kind of disappears and becomes just about the place where you are and highlights what the building is about. In this case, the aquarium is about the bay, it's about that special ecosystem, and the building really amplifies that. So we took the, the early studies of... Uh, daylight and, and environmental appropriateness and turned it into an art. And that skylight there represents the, the um, kind of how, how light in buildings can be art and can be an inspirational environment. Um, as the buildings got bigger and we expanded our repertoire to the university environment, this is a library at UC Santa Cruz that's nestled in the redwoods. Its claim to fame is that a handful of redwood trees were taken down to build this building, and yet it feels like it's wrapped around the redwoods. I'm going to skip that one. More recently, um, the, the conversation about sustainability and green building has really flourished in the last eight years. Ten years ago, we entered a competition in Chicago for um, affordable housing that was sustainable or green. Uh, we won one of the competitions in that little red house on the left, is, uh, is the one that we built. At, at 10 years ago, people weren't talking about green roofs or um, no ventilation systems inside a building. And that we call this building the Factor 10 house because we endeavored to reduce the uh, resource use and energy use of this building by a factor of 10 over a typical single-family house. And we have successfully done that. The man who lives there is... Um, Loves the, loves the fact that it has a minimal impact and is, it loves the environment. Um, we used in this kind of 21st century house some of the concepts that Joe used 50 years ago. Bringing windows to the edge of the building to wash walls with light, wash light walls with light so that the daylight bounces deeply into the building so you can turn off the overhead lights. And some of these concepts I'll show you in the San Mateo Library. Um, they, they apply both to a small house as much as they do to a big public building. Um, closer to home at Stanford University, uh, the Center for Global Ecology, which opened three or four years ago, um, houses scientists who are studying climate change. So they were interested in making their building be a, f a reflection of their, uh, of their values. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about LEED, if any of you know what that is, the uh, USGBC's green building rating system. And when this building started design, lead, the LEED system was really just um, gaining some traction. 
And these scientists chose to go the opposite direction and say, we want a building that does everything that to minimize its impact on climate change. We're not so interested in kind of resource uh, minimization um, and more about climate change. So uh, the way that was done by th was through the mechanical system and taking advantage of this local climate. Um, you see the roll-up garage doors here, which on many days are open to the lobby. Um, the one resource innovation they did do is that the wood on the side of this building is from reclaimed wine barrels. Um, they have a nice red hue to them and smell great. Um, and there, it's all passively ventilated with an evaporative cooling tower here that really minimizes the amount of heating and cooling that's necessary. The roof is what's called a cool roof, and, I, and, that, and that means that the um, water is sprayed on the roof at night when the air is cool. That cool water is then taken through the gutters and into a, the, the cooling system of the building, so it's all naturally cooled, run through the building and as in their mechanical system, the, the air that comes out of the vents, and that's kind of a natural um, evening cooling flushing system, and then during the day as the building warms up, um, that air is then ventilated out. So it's a, it's a completely natural cycle that takes advantage of our cool evenings and our warm days. So the, um, while there are many technical aspects to green building, I think one of the greatest outcomes is the, the benefit of a user or an occupant's, um, the, the, the quality of the internal environment. And that building is among the highest rated um, in terms of comfort and uh, usability and productivity of the people working inside uh, when, when studied against uh, buildings across the country. So not only are there energy savings, cost savings, um, sustainability measures that just make sense, the overall environment is, is far improved. More recently, and then I'm coming to the end of the, the firm piece here, um, we have two buildings, and we have four over the last five years uh, that have reached the LEED Platinum level, which is the highest level of LEED rating and rather hard to, to achieve. What, this is a science building at Mills College, which has a number of interesting systems in it. Rainwater, for the little rain that we do get here, is used as a gray water system to flush the toilets is one of the innovative systems and much of the roof is covered with photovoltaic panels um, and contributes a, a pretty good percentage of uh, the electricity needs for the building. So this building very easily reached a platinum level. Um, and for a science building that is, uses a fair amount of energy for all of the labs that are in it, this is a pretty remarkable uh, feat. This is a school. Um, it's actually not at Sea Ranch, uh, but it's, it's down near Monterey, uh, Chartwell School, which also um, reached a lead platinum uh, status in, in the last couple of years. So that, with that, I'm going to transition to a little personal story that I'd like to share here with you, which um, it's one thing to talk about the firm you work for, it's another to kind of make the connections about the environment, community, and kind of what I do in, in communities. But, um, so I'd like to take you on a little journey through my personal understanding of energy issues, and I suspect, depending on what generation you reside in, what decade you were born, you will, you will connect with this story, and if you're, if you're younger than I am, you'll have your own story for, for, for this day and age. Um, I was in the fifth grade in 1975, so you can do the math, figure out how old I am, uh, when the energy crisis hit. It was the 70s. 
My parents were among um, early Americans living in Europe, so I was growing, I grew up in Belgium. Um, my, my grandfather was a car dealer in Indiana. Um, so my mother, with five children in tow, wasn't going to go and live in Europe without a big Ford car in tow. So it was the spring of 1975 when the energy crisis hit, which some of you will not know. It's probably before you were born. Um, and gas prices were above 40 Belgian francs a liter, which was outrageous at the time. And there were images all over the magazines, Time magazine, of cars lining up for their gas. Um, so the Belgian government did an amazing thing, and I understand the Germans and the Dutch did the same thing, and they banned all driving on Sunday throughout the country. It was a remarkable thing, I'm sure, for the adults, but as a kid, the experience of having the streets to yourself and not having the rushing of driving all the time really changed my view of my connection to my street, to the town that we lived in, and the kind of family time we spent together. So now, it, it was Europe, and commerce is generally closed on Sunday, so it was, it's a very, a very different environment. But the, the, the impact of that kind of slowing and stopping for a day, um, still, I can still feel it today. Um, so a few months ago, and with a little kind of romantic notion about what that experience was for me, I was reading The Economist, and they were making connections between the 70s oil crisis and the 90s oil crisis. And that's where I started to think about the opportunity that the energy crisis that we're in now offers us in terms of building community. And I won't get into the economics of it all because I'm an architect, not an economist, but it, I, was, I, I appreciated the differences and the similarities. So as you fast forward to 2000, and this is kind of my introduction to the San Mateo Library, which I'll, I'll continue to talk about, um, California was experiencing rolling blackouts. My guess is that most of you remember that, no matter your age. It was a different energy crisis, and that energy crisis is different than the energy crisis of today. That one was of regulation. Um, and we were starting the public process of soliciting input from the city and um, residents of the San Mateo area for a new pu public library. It's a big library city. They had passed a local bond, great support for the project. Um, and it was the new library was going to triple the size of the existing library. But in our very first workshop, a woman, the last question of the first workshop, one of 50, raised her hand and said, so the lights are flickering and you haven't talked anything about sustainability and green building. And city, what are you asking your architects to do? It's a great question for the audience to ask a city because then the city has to take it seriously and they very much did. It was the beginning of their establishing a policy for green building among their public buildings and as time went on, their policy has expanded, um, much like San Jose's has to kind of broader um, building requirements uh, in, in terms of green building in the city. Um, the woman had happened to be in, uh, in an Eshrick or an EHDD house in the last five years, which was a special um, kind of a green building that was built to demonstrate green systems. So she was, she, we, we didn't plant her in the audience, but she knew what she was asking. So it was at that time um, that the city asked us to, to design a lead uh, building for them. Now, that was, in, that was eight years ago, and LEED was a very newly emerging system. You had to explain what it was, um, and I think if I were to do, a, when I do public meetings today, LEED is pretty well understood. 
So if you fast forward to 2006, um, the project opened, uh, sil lead silver was assured, and we were really pushing for lead gold. Um, and just about a month ago, we achieved that lead gold rating, and the library is celebrating that this weekend. But um, what I'd like to do now is take you on a, a kind of a, a walking tour through that process for designing a green building, what it means in the systems, and that's where it gets a little bit technical, so I'll keep it brief in that. Um, and just so you can kind of be aware in any building that you're in, what impact you can have um, both in the, in the being in the building and if you ever get the great opportunity to participate in a public meeting or directly in a building process, what questions you can start asking. So we leave Brussels and come to San Mateo. So I talked about the, the uh, 50 public workshops. Um, the purpose was really to find and understand the core values of the San Mateo community. And you can't do that by reading a book. You can't do that by talking to one or two people. You have to talk to as many of the 90,000 residents of that city as you can. And then you have to build, because it's a public pro project, funded by public dollars and, and, and private fundraising, you have to engage people's desires about what the library will be and capture a quality in the architecture and you only, I only do that by engaging in dialogue with people. And there are no better experts than the people who live on that street and in that city for getting to the kind of core issues um, of that building. So these are some early uh, summaries of what was desired, what the constraints were of the site, what the ish parking is always at the top of the list, um, desirable qualities within the building, and littered through here are uh, mention of sustainable approaches. Uh, these are early diagrams that we do that end up being fundamental to an approach to a green building. So what direction does the wind come? Where's the sun? What's north, south, east, and west? Um, I pointed it wrongly. It's north, south, east, and, east and west. Um, what physical amenities are there on the site? There, were a, there was a grove of uh, five redwood trees that were planted when the original building was built. The story is that they were they were planted to hide the building. The San Mateo Library was a vintage not unlike this building we're in, so you can imagine the concrete, a concrete bunker. Um, and what are, the, what are the surrounding buildings around it, and what should the building's relationship be to those? And it was early on that, and this is a rather uh, difficult drawing to understand, but this is a slice through the building um, that describes some of the basic planning ideas when you're designing a building that support the, the, the greenest or most sustainable uh, initiatives. Bringing daylight in so that you can turn on the, off the overhead lights, not like this room, is, 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 uh, is goal number one. A, you like to be in a room with daylight. B, you can turn the lights off. You kill two birds with one stone. If you can bring uh, this great natural environment that we have here, we're very fortunate, doesn't get too hot, doesn't get too cold. Well. In San Mateo, it doesn't get too hot. Um, if you can bring that air in and then vent it out the top, hot air rises. We all learned that. Um, that's another way. It kind of brings natural, the, the natural air in. If you can distribute the air, here it's distributed overhead and pumped down. And often if you're sitting underneath one of those vents, you feel the draft. It's not so comfortable. If you bring it in from the ground, it comes up at a lower velocity, at a lower temperature, and it's much more comfortable and much more efficient in the mechanical system. Um, and then in all the materials that you use, whether it's steel or concrete, do as much recyclable, reusable material as you can. Um, 
and 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 then it goes to you know low VOC paints, um, and and you can you can take sustainable measures down to every micro of a building. But the the basic building blocks have to be strong, and site orientation to take advantage of daylight and uh, natural ventilation are the basic blocks. Here were some early sketches of. Um, what those, how those concepts were going to lead to inspiring spaces. This facade faces north. It's a great orientation. You don't get any direct sunlight, so you can open up because you don't get as much heat gain from the sun coming in. That you then have to cool the building. Um, bring skylights from above into the middle of the building where you're not close enough to the edges to bring daylight in. And that creates inspiring two-story spaces. And in this case, the site was small, those two-story spaces. Um, needed to be narrow and, and small enough so as not to, to take up too much space. And here it is. So it took six years. A lot of that was the, were the public meetings. Um, some of that was just how long it takes to do this. Uh, and two, two years of that were the uh, construction. So it's, um, uh, there, there were some key qualities that the community wanted. One was they wanted to, they wanted, they wanted to be proud of their, li their library. They wanted it to be the civic building in the city that people were drawn to. It's the library. It should be that. Um, but it occupied a very stately site. So the, uh, the, the colonnade makes it a very civic building. But they also wanted it to feel like their living room. So those are two rather challenging, opposing qualities. Um, and the warm stone and the, uh, the wood on the soffits really give it that warm quality. So here's some of those spaces that I showed you in the drawing. That's the entry with the uh, daylight coming in from the northwest. You can see the, the late in the day, the sun comes streaming into the lobby. The, f the uh, lights are on just for the photographs, but often during the day there's enough daylight that all the lights can be off. The lights are on sensors so that when there's enough daylight in, in, in the building, um, the lights can go off. This is the two-story space, that reading room that I showed you with daylight coming in, and that two-story reading room which has the skylight above. People wanted a variety of reading spaces. That's kind of adapting to your, your whole, the kind of whole range of population when you're designing a public library. So whether it was at a table or a comfortable chair, whether it was in an open room or out at the perimeter where you could cozy up against the window, which is what I usually do, um, that variety was necessary. There's a, there's a counter here with seats that look out into the lobby for those who like to observe. And those five redwood trees became three. It was healthier for the trees. <laughs> and, and they provided a great um, opportunity to shield that really strong west-facing sunlight late in the day. So the light filtered through those trees and it makes a pretty spectacular space inside. Those tall windows mimic those redwood trees. And there you can see the different yet more types of seating. So the fact that the building is lead, gold, sustainable is something that the city is so proud of. They have docent-led tours. They have self-guided tours. They have, a, they have a model showing all the sustainable features of the building. Um, and people, people are just drawn to the library. My, my, my guess is because it's a beautiful place to, to work and be and meet with people. Um, but it's also a very comfortable building. So LEED. 
I'm going to go through this rather quickly, but it stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And um, there are 1,500 buildings that have gotten LEED um, certification over the last six years, and there are something like 5,000 in the hopper waiting for that, waiting for the... Um, waiting for their certification. So it's taken, it's kind of taken off like wildfire. Um, LEED reviews um, these six criteria, site selection, water efficiency, energy and atmosphere, materials and resources, indoor environmental quality and innovation. And you get different points within each of those categories and then you are awarded a, cert a certificate of certification at a minimum, silver, gold and platinum. We have focused heavily in our first few years of this on um, reducing energy use of buildings. And I'll talk a little bit about that when I tie it into the 2030 challenge. But you do that by using the natural resources that you have and making sure your um, mechanical system is as efficient as it can possibly be. The underfloor access, underfloor air, which is shown here under construction, um, reduces that energy use pretty greatly. And if it, you can use the outside air, which here in technical terms is called the economizer cycle, um, you're not having to chill any water to cool the air. There's that section again. Um, of course, you want to minimize the amount of heat coming into the building by having well-insulated walls. If you have a home, you're going to want to do that anyway. That's probably something you've, been, uh, you've learned about. And with all that glass bringing the daylight in, you do have to worry about heat gain in the building. But glass has gotten very sophisticated recently. You can get glass with a film on it that you can't see that allows daylight in, doesn't look like anything, and, and, um, and, and yet keeps the heat out, and that's called low E glass. Um, I'm just going through here just four or five different aspects of building design that affect the sustainable measures um, and make it a green building. There are many, many others. Um, Cities, with all of their buildings and dark roofs, generally have a higher temperature, just in, in general. If you can, you can reduce that by having a reflective roof, which also keeps the heat out of the building, um, and, and plant around the building, and that's called a reduced heat island effect. So you can see the roof here is white. We were a little worried that the neighbors would have a problem with all that reflection. We're taking a photo from a neighbor's terrace, um, and I haven't heard anything about the reflection issues there. So. Um, lighting, uh, high-performance lighting, minimizing the use of it um, has a big impact on energy use. Maximizing daylight, as I talked about, this is one of the tools we use. We, we build a big model, we take it outside, we orient it to sunlight conditions at different times of year, and we make both aesthetic and mostly aesthetic decisions on that daylight coming in. There's a view of it from the inside. The building looks a lot like that. And then in your basic material selection, material, uh, materials use a lot of energy both in their production, in their transportation. Using local materials is highly desirable over something that's shipped across the seas. Um, steel, interestingly enough, has a very high recycled content rate as it is. This building was built during the big surge in construction in China. The, um, so there was, a, there was a, a run on the steel, and it cost a lot, right, as we were bidding. Um, but there's much that can be done in terms of recycled content. Those braces that you see there are a, um, they were 
kind of an innovative use at the time. They're fairly commonly used now in buildings that are intended to have a 50 to 100 year lifespan in an earthquake zone. These are dampers that in a major event, as the building shakes, those braces keep the building from shaking too much. And those braces can be taken out and replaced and the building reused, which is really a, an extremely important sustainability approach. Not building is the most sustainable thing to do. <laughs> That's not very realistic. So, um, wood is kind of an obvious uh, finished material uh, in the building, and there are uh, there's a lot been a lot of focus on clear cutting over the last 20 years and, and trying to minimize it. Um, there's a big movement of forest uh, FSC certified wood, um, which is the Forest Stewardship Council which uh, grows and harvests wood in a very sustainable way in a very, um, and, 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 and uh, also grows rapidly renewable wood. So that, that is a, um, there are many different wood rating systems. FSC is not the only one, but when, paying, when, when buying wood um, and specifying it, we uh, try and get FSC certified as much as we can. It, protects the resources in our rainforests and forests across the, across the world. So there are different, so concrete, um, concrete is a big environment, has big environmental impacts. And here are some of the statistics, um, but it, Portland cement, which is one of the three key ingredients of, of concrete is, as it says there, an energy hog. If you can reduce the amount of cement you're using, you're doing a great favor to, to our environment. There are alternatives. And our office has been um, kind of leaders in the research with some UC Berkeley scientists on the use of high volume fly ash, which is a byproduct of coal burning. So it, uh, it does two, um, kills two birds with one stone, if you will. And slag is another byproduct that, that can be used as a replacement for cement. So the concrete in that building, there's a lot of it, and the cement use was reduced by 40%. The original library was a concrete building. Much of it was um, uh, recycled or reclaimed. And uh, so 95% of the existing building uh, was reused. Most of the concrete was ground up and used in a, a, a park on the other side of San Mateo. So it, we didn't have transportation costs. The contractor who, who was receiving the, uh, the ground up concrete was happy not to have to ship it from somewhere else. Um, and it gave the city of San Mateo a great story to tell about the, the recycling and reusing of that. Any of the steel in the building was not used for the steel in our building, but was sent off and recycled. And carpet and um, furniture was reused elsewhere, and uh, carpet was recycled. So 95% level, all buildings should be reaching this. There's no reason not to. And contractors are now interested in, contractors are usually the, the, the stumbling block. And they, over the last 10 years, contractors are, embrace, are embracing reusing and recycling. Uh, because it's cheaper for them. So there's much still to do. The basic adage of reduce, reuse, recycle, if you think about that for everything you do, even in a building, um, those still apply. One of the um, concepts that this building doesn't have are the photovoltaic panels. Um, they have the infrastructure for it. If they get a donation and are able to add photovoltaics on the roof, that would add to their renewable energy um, would make a renewable energy strategy. It was around this time when the, um, when the library opened that 
uh, this whole issue of carbon credits was coming up. This was in uh, 2005. And our office was offsetting our carbon use um, with the Chicago Climate Exchange. Um, I called the uh, city manager and said, you really ought to be doing these carbon offsets. How, how about we do that for the, for the library? Um, and he, we needed to explain it a lot. And they ended up, the city has ended up, I think, doing the carbon credits. Um, but it was shocking to me that at that, a, a year later, it was the year of the inconvenient truth. The building opened. People were really paying attention to the issues of the environment. And then carbon trading, buying carbon offsets, as, as recently as last year, people know about it. You can write off your airline flights. So the, the kind of pace of, of change in sustainable building and the, the, the knowledge about green building and the impacts of buildings on the environment has, has really skyrocketed. And yet we have a long way to go, and buildings are a huge piece of the um, environmental problem. So that takes me to the 2030 challenge. There are some percentages missing here, but buildings um, consume 48% of our U.S. energy consumption. That's half in buildings. The rest are in cars and industry. Industry, interestingly enough, has been under regulation long enough that their, their uh, reductions are pretty strong. And buildings use 76% of our electricity. So those two facts alone put architects and building owners and building users, which pretty much means all of us, in the hot seat to make these reductions. So there's an architect named Ed Masria from New Mexico who put forth the 2030 challenge, which was essentially to reduce, um, to essentially make the built environment carbon neutral by 2030. He introduced this four or five years ago. There's a whole website, architecture2030.org. Um, many groups, including the U.S. Conference of Mayors, have signed on to it. Our office has signed on to it. The city of Santa Barbara has signed on to it. There are many organizations who um, believe this is what we have to do in order to, to quell the sea change of um, environmental impact that we're dealing with over the next now 20 years. Um, and so there's a very kind of a technical way of looking at how to achieve the 2030 challenge, and we're doing it as part of um, our firm, though it is a very high bar to meet. Um, and it requires not only architects and building owners, but as I said, building users to understand uh, what it means to be able to affect the environment you're living in. And you can do that. You can do that by demanding when you're designing a building that, that all rooms have some daylight. And that's both a lead point, it's good for your comfort, as students, you're going to learn better. There are studies that show that in daylit rooms, you're, the, the rate of learning is quite a bit higher. Um, so we, we have quite a challenge ahead of us. And the, um, there are, the city of San Francisco has recently implemented the most aggressive green building codes in the country. Um, and not only in building, the, the kind of recycling rate target for San Francisco is getting close to 99%. Um, and the city of San Jose in 2001 uh, described their uh, green building policy and over successive years have required their public buildings to, to meet a LEED standard. It's a LEED silver standard. And more recently, and I think the, uh, the local city council is in discussion now about private buildings having a LEED standard. Um, and yet that's, that's excellent and that's what we need and yet, and yet we need more. So. Um, we have a few projects in our office at the moment that are targeting um, 
net zero energy, meaning the energy that's consumed by the building is also produced by the building. One of them is a small building down at UC Santa Barbara. One is the headquarters for a fairly well-known foundation here in the Palo Alto area that's really trying to look at the building not just as a generator of its own energy to neutralize its energy use, but it's also implementing new transportation policies that minimize the amount of um, car driving that people are doing to come to work. They're minimizing the amount of parking they're providing, um, and they're taking a wholesale look at how their organization operates, from the, the food that people are getting at lunch, where it's coming from, the whole local movement, um, to transportation, to the energy use of the building and the, the infrastructure. So I guess my, um, I believe that there's a, um, there is a silver lining in all these energy crises. And I do believe that the comfort of our environment, both our, kind of the, the environment that, where we pass through spaces, with your, if you're driving or walking or taking a bus, um, or occupying the buildings that we're in, can really change the way we look at the world, we look at the environment, and we interact with each other. And I believe um, profoundly that the library libraries, whether it's the heart of an academic university campus or the heart of a city and, or a county and a community, is a place and a, and a responsibility that librarians and library staff and cities have to, to share that story and be kind of a repository for a different way of living. You, 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 you have the information to give out, you have the structures to um, be an example, um, and there are many libraries in the state of California that are meeting lead standards. There are cities that are leading the way. Um, and I think uh, librarians and libraries have a great, great role to play with us as architects in kind of a shift in um, idea and mentality about buildings and the environment. So with that, I'm happy to um, answer some questions. I, I did bring a couple of examples. I, the example that I showed you today was for a new building. Many communities don't have the great opportunity to build new buildings. Um, and that was a big one at that. Uh, that was a 90,000-square-foot library. Um, there are community and branch libraries across the state with all the bond funding over the last 10 years that have been building um, smaller branch libraries or um, renovating buildings. And there's much that can be done even just in the renovation of a building. And that's, this, is, this was a workshop study that Anthony referred to um, for the Pleasant Hill Library that talked about how to make the, um, among some of the issues were how to reduce that asphalt of paving that's out in front of the library, cover it with trees, make it a more pleasant environment, allow the, the, the uh, landscape to absorb some of the CO2 that exists in our environment, um, make it a more pleasant place to be, and then renovate the building. You can really re reinvigorate a building, as I understand has happened in this very building, and make it a completely new place. Um, and that's, again, the most sustainable thing you can do is not build. But as an architect, I can't promote that too much. But you can renovate, and you can renovate well. His name was Ed Mazria, M-A-Z-R-I-A. And his uh, website is www.architecture2030.org. I think with a couple of um, with a couple of key 
exceptions, the, simply the environment within the, within the building. You walk in the door, you're, one of the, this is gonna be a roundabout answer, one of the um, fundamental uh, design concepts, which really was an outgrowth of people's reaction to the existing building, which was, like this building, concrete waffle slabs, 10-foot ceilings, there's a stair tucked in the back corner, you couldn't find your way to the stair, Staff had to be telling people where, how to find the stair and then find the stair, which was in a different location to get from the third, second to the third floor. So people's use of the building wasn't intuitive. So their desire was to have an open, clear, that the building just tells you where to go and what to do. Um, so it's a great opportunity to design a building where you come in, two-story space, you see that it's a, a three-story building, you see where the stair is, you use the stair, not the elevator, and it's kind of an intuitive move through the building. I think when you come in and see that the the entire building is daylight and that you don't need the lights overhead, that's a kind of a quick clue and that you can choose how much daylight you want. Here you don't have, you don't have much control over, it's a very kind of uniform amount of light. It's not much like the way the sun is. Sun either has it or you're in shade and you get to choose where you are in that environment. And this building has that as well. So the, some of the more technical Aspects um, like the underfloor air, you can see the windows moving. Windows are on, on, uh, on operators in a public building. Often the windows don't open. So you can see the windows moving and opening. You can see the shades coming down when the sun's getting too strong. Um, so, so the operable systems, which admittedly for a city, you have to commit to living in a building in a different way. There will be days when it's a little warmer. Well, it's warmer outside. I'd rather be warm in a building when it's warm outside than freezing, which is often the case in these buildings that are sealed with pumped with air conditioning. So there's a kind of a, 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 kind of a, a, a feeling of comfort, I think, that raises the question of why is this building more comfortable than others? I, I can clearly say I don't think there's a downside. <laughs> um, because in fact, there, they, and, and we, can, we can do a lead silver building without any additional cost. As you go to lead platinum and you're trying to get to net zero energy at this point in time, you're putting photovoltaics on the roof often um, to counterbalance, to provide the renewable energy sources, and that's, those, are, those are costly. Hopefully those prices will come down as demand goes up. I'm kind of a fan of high gas prices to keep, <laughs> keep alternative systems in place, so I don't like to see the, the price of gas coming down. Um, there, there was a cost 10 years ago when people, when contractors and owners were getting used to the idea that there was, uh, that, that, that there, there were new systems. Um, so depending on what you're doing and depending on how aggressive you're being with sustainability, the costs are, are, can be, are pretty minimal. And when you're investing in a library like the San Mateo Library, which is a $45 million construction cost, you know, one to two percent is pretty minor when you imagine um, the benefit of that many more um, people coming to the library. The, you know, there, there are the intangible benefits that are, that are hard to quantify. I would say there are, there are some challenges, and that is the systems are different. Um, occupiers and maintainers of the buildings have to look at the buildings in a different way. You don't just walk in and ignore everything, switch on the lights. You, you engage with the building, and that's, that's a sociological change in the way we as users and, and um, facilities people uh, engage with buildings. I, I hope that this energy crisis that we've been in 
continues because it, it makes the case. Uh, and, and, and I'm a big fan of the, the, the new green economy to help us through this uh, economic mess we're in. So, and California's leading the way. Thank you for coming. Thank you for watching. Appreciate it. <laughs>